John chapter 16. Tonight we're going we're gonna to start thinking about our topic tonight from something that Jesus says in this chapter. But before it's all said now, we're going to look at a lot of different, a lot of different passages. We're still in our series this fall on, on the church. And we spent the last couple of Wednesdays that we were in here talking about the worship of the church. We took a break last week for the International Missions Festival. And I hope you were able to be here for that and enjoyed the panel we have. But tonight we're, we're sort of switching focus just a little bit. And still in our series on the church. But we're going to spend a, a few weeks, uh, probably the next three, uh, a little bit in um, thinking through some of the history of the church. All right, A little bit of church history, still deeply rooted in the Scriptures. Uh, heavily in the Scriptures, but sort of mingling in some events and episodes throughout church history to help us gain a good understanding of our own history in the faith. And, and, and a good measure of confidence in God's Word. Full assurance for the future. So tonight we're going to talk about the history of the church, part one, the church persecuted. The church persecuted. Next week, we'll do part two, the church in power. Alright? Tonight is, is the church persecuted. And next week, the church in power. What can we learn from what Scripture says and, and, and what can we learn from what has actually happened in history, uh, in, in churches, the church's history, when the church has faced persecution, been persecuted, and, and also when it has been in positions of power and prosperity and, and, and influence. And the church has had seasons of both of those and, uh, and has a lot to learn. So we're going to think about them. Starting tonight, History of the Church, Part 1, The Church Persecuted. We have a bit of ground to cover. So let's begin by reading a passage we have here in John 16, and then we'll dive into our, our theme. So if you found that, we're going to begin reading in verse 25 and read to the end of the chapter. Jesus talking to his disciples on the night that he would be betrayed and arrested, be crucified the very next day, <clears throat> said, I have said these things to you in, a, in, in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you. Isn't that beautiful? Because you have loved me and have, come, have, have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figures of speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. When you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you'll have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Father, tonight's topic is a, is a sobering one. It is one that we are not, most of us in this room, I would say at least, 
we're not intimately familiar with by personal experience. That doesn't mean, however, that we can really know nothing of what we're going to talk about. This is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. Your spirit speaks through it. And, and through your spirit's enabling power, you are able to help our minds understand the truths that we read in it. And our hearts to embrace and feel deeply and love and embrace what we know, what we hear and see. And, and you, by your spirit, can give us wills to obey, whatever it may call us to do. And so we do ask that you would do those things for us tonight. Father, I pray that you would give me help to teach clearly with the passion that it deserves. And please, Lord, give us all ears to hear, I pray in Jesus' name, for the glory of his name. Amen. All right, so we could have started in any number of places to think about this topic tonight and think about this thing, the, the church persecuted. But this is as good as any. And, and obviously it's for that last verse where Jesus tells his disciples very plainly, in the world you will have tribulation. In the world you will have tribulation. The Greek word there is hard to say. It's thlipsis. Thlipsis. And it, it, means, it means tribulation. It means affliction. It means hardship or pressure. And so Jesus says very matter-of-factly, and he'll say, he said it much more matter-of-factly in the chapter before this one when he said, if they hated me, they'll hate you. They'll hate you. In this world, you'll have tribulation, but that's not the end of the sentence. He's just as adamant to say in the second half, I have overcome the world. Take heart. So persecution, Jesus says here, for, for his disciples, for his followers, will be um, a reality. But it's not something to be feared. Persecution will be a reality, but it's not something to be feared. And, and in some places in the world, while it may feel like, if you're in the middle of it, it may feel like defeat, it's not. Nor will it ever be, despite appearances. All right? So Jesus has already won the victory. He rose from the dead, the certainty of the dawn of a new creation. And uh, I want us to see from Scripture that even when Jesus said to his disciples, in the world you'll have tribulation, he was not saying anything new. He was not saying anything new. That has been a reality since the beginning. And I mean the beginning. The beginning of the beginning. And it helps us to see, it'll help us, I think, to see the history uh, that we're talking about, this church history, with clearer eyes and better understanding. So here's what I want us to think about in our time together tonight. I want, to begin, I want us to think about the scriptural expectation of persecution. The scriptural expectation of persecution. I think Scripture gives us a good picture of not only that there has been persecution and that there is persecution, but also why. Why has there been persecution? Why is there persecution in the world? Because you, if you go on the concourse today and, and, and you, start, you walk up to random people and tell them that you believe in unicorns, they might think that's weird but they're not going to do anything but if you immediately start talking about jesus you'll get a very different kind of reaction why is that scripture tells us why then i want to go back and forth between scripture and church history to examine the question of what has persecution done to the church throughout its history what has persecution done to its church what what should we expect to happen 
to the persecuted church in the world today. Uh, you know, so I, I'm not sure exactly what to call that point. I'm, I'm calling it the scriptural and historical outcome of persecution. The scriptural and historical outcome of persecution. What should we expect the outcome to be of the persecuted church? Just those two things. The expectation in Scripture that persecution always has been and is a reality. What has been, according to Scripture and according to church history, what has been the outcome in the church in seasons of persecution? Just those two things. That'll give us plenty to talk about. So let's get into it and think first about the scriptural expectation. We've already seen in this passage that we first opened to, up to that Jesus told his disciples to expect persecution and hardship simply for faithfully following him in the world. In this world, you will have tribulation. But I told you that, that when he said that, yeah, he's talking to, I mean, he's talking to new believers in the sense that he has now physically come in the flesh and now these are his his disciples a new a new era has dawned in the world in that the messiah has come and he's telling them this but he's still not telling them anything new he's telling them what to expect but it's not new uh, jesus was telling them to expect persecution in the world because it has been it had been a reality in the world since practically the beginning of the world and i want us to see that and to not only understand that i think to understand that is is, is not only to see clearly that persecution against God's people has always been a reality, but it's also why. I already said that. So you can trace the persecution of God's people back to the third chapter of the Bible. Okay? So uh, that's all the way back in Genesis 3.15 where, remember, and you can, you can flip to all these if you want. I'll try to have most of them up on the screen. But in Genesis 3, remember, um, Adam and Eve had... had sinned and had broken God's law. You can eat of all the trees of the garden, but of this one tree you shall not eat. They did eat. And God comes to them, and He starts handing down His just judgments against them. It's a gracious judgment, as we'll see, but He hands down His judgments to them because of their disobedience. Comes first to the serpent, right? Comes first to the serpent, and God says to the serpent there, I will put enmity, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Who, who all is in view there? I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and, and the woman. So who's the woman? The woman there is being Eve, right? Eve, and between your offspring and her offspring. So who are the offspring here? Eve is the woman and her offspring would be uh, all her godly believing offspring, especially the line that would ultimately lead to the coming of Christ. Okay? We've got two lines coming here, a godly line, godly offspring, ungodly offspring. Satan and his offspring, woman and her offspring. The, Satan, the serpent is Satan, his offspring being the ungodly offspring of Adam and Eve, multiplying into the world of unbelievers who would be opposed to God in Christ. And God says right there that between those two groups of people, He would put enmity. God is doing that. I will put enmity, He says, between you and the woman. What is enmity? We don't use that word very much. What is enmity? I'll put enmity there. What is that? Enmity is, is being actively opposed to something. It's being hostile toward each other. That's enmity. It's this, clearly, it's the same root where we get the word enemy. So these two groups are going to be enemies, 
hostile to each other, actively opposed to each other. Those two groups are, 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 will act as enemies to each other. And it says God put that there. Alright. So now there's two ways to look at that. Between Eve and her godly line of offspring and, and, and her, uh, her ungodly line, there's, enmity, there's two ways to look at that. On the one hand, that's an act of grace from God toward His people. Why? Because that, that, he, that God put that enmity in my heart, it means that if, that if you're in Christ, there is, there is something within your spirit, there is something within your conscience to see evil for what it is and not want to walk just totally unopposed in accordance with it. There's something in your heart that, that when you see evil or ungodliness, there's something in your conscience that says, I don't need to go that way. That's enmity in your heart toward that thing. right? That's gracious from God. But the other aspect of that enmity is that it will mean active hostility and enmity from the world toward the people of God. It will guarantee persecution. There is enmity from the world against God and His people. Enmity is there. It will guarantee persecution. But who put the enmity there? God did. So persecution will happen, but all according to the good plan and will of God. Okay? So persecution against God's people began as early as Genesis 3.15 when with Satan being the key instigator between your offspring, Satan, your offspring, Satan and his offspring are the key instigators. Right? When, and, and so Satan is behind this. What I'm trying to establish is Satan here. It's under God's rule. It's under God's providence, sovereignty. But in God's providence, He has allowed Satan to be the main instigator of this enmity. Satan to be the, and his offspring to be the main instigator of persecution against Christians. That's what I see in Genesis 3.15. Am I way off? I don't think so. So I do want you to turn to Revelation. We're going to the other end of the Bible. Turn to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. We're going thick in the weeds tonight, peoples. Revelation chapter 12. This chapter begins a section of the book that, that will run through chapter 14 describing exactly this, the persecution against the people of God in the world. Revelation is not just about future events, by the way. Revelation is about stuff that's going on right now, too. Now, in Revelation 12, look with me in verses 1 through 14. I mean, excuse me, 1 through 4. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant, was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns on his head, seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast down, them down to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. All right. The, because we've got a lot of ground to cover, I'm just going to tell you what, how I read this. The woman there represents, I believe, first of all, Eve, the first woman, 
but all, all the whole line of births leading up to the birth of Christ in that, in that line, leading all the way to Mary, Eve to Mary, in the line leading up to Christ. All right? In other words, the woman represents all the people of God, specifically the line that leads to the birth of Christ, from the first man and woman to the birth of Christ. That's this woman here. About, she's pictured about to give birth. And what is happening? A dragon is there with a third of heaven that rebelled, against, uh, rebelled with him, clearly Satan and his demons. And what is Satan doing? He's waiting for the woman to give birth. And it says there at the end of verse 4, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. And now, if I'm correct in what I'm saying this represents, this means Satan wants to stop the birth of Christ. That is Satan's aim in, throughout the Old Testament. He wants to prevent the coming of the Christ. He wants to prevent the birth of Christ. Up until the time he was born of the Virgin Mary, trying to stop the coming of salvation. That is the whole story of the Old Testament. That's the whole story beginning with Cain killed Abel. Cain killed Abel. That wasn't just an S in Genesis 4. That's not just an episode showing how evil sin can make us. That is an episode showing how evil sin can make us, but there's more going on right there. There is more going on than just one brother killed another brother. It was the first example of, of, of trying to kill the godly line that would ultimately lead to the coming of the Christ. All right? Which is why... Am I reading way too much into that? No, I don't think so. Because when Abel died, and, and Eve had another son, whose name was, how did she describe that? How did she describe it at the end of chapter 4? She describes it this way. Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. Instead of Abel. This wasn't just another son, but one to take Abel's place. To take the place he had, he, his place in what? In the godly line that would ultimately lead forward to Christ. And Seth appears in the genealogy of Jesus in Luke 3.38. But Satan had tried to put a stop to it from the beginning when Cain killed Abel. He didn't just hurt him, he killed him. Later, he marched down the time of history. Later, the wickedness in the world got so severe and so bad that the whole world fell under the judgment of God. When God determined to send a flood to judge all humanity, but in doing that, if all the people in the world were, were to be swept away, the Savior, as promised in Genesis 3.15, could not come. So to keep His word, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Not you, Noah, but another Noah. You found favor in the eyes of the Lord too. Noah is in the genealogy of Jesus in Luke 3.36. As time went on, Joseph's brothers hate him, don't they? So what do they do? They sell him into slavery where surely he would die, as most of the slaves did. But what did God do? And if, if Joseph died in slavery, that would effectively stop the coming of Christ because it was in that line that he would come. But what did God do? He preserved Noah by rising him up in the ranks of Egypt to preserve people alive during a famine. Joseph 
who almost died through the persecution of his brothers, was kept alive by the sovereign hand of God, who appears in the genealogy of Jesus in Luke 3.30. Satan, working in every generation to try to stop the coming of Christ, he's the dragon trying to kill the child when he's born. Then there came a time when a Pharaoh came to power who didn't remember Joseph. And the people of Israel then suffered persecution deeply as slaves in Egypt for 430 years. 430 years. Just think about that. 430 years ago from today, Shakespeare was writing plays. 430 years ago was 43 years before Galileo said, hey, we're revolving around the sun. They were slaves in Egypt for 430 years. 430 years. Mercilessly treated and, and, and looking, had to have looked with every passing year and decade and century that the promise of God to send a Savior wasn't going to happen. Satan's winning. But God raised up Moses in his good time to deliver the people out of their bondage, bring them into the promised land where they could flourish and all his promises still come to pass and they did flourish there for a while. And it became clear that the Savior would come while they were in that promised land. It became clear that this Savior would come through the line of David. Not just any old Israelite, but specifically through the line of Judah and then David. So when you're reading like First and Second Samuel and then you're reading about David, okay, this Savior's going to come through David's line. When you read in, in, in First Samuel that when Saul was king, a harmful spirit came upon Saul when he was king. The Holy Spirit left him because David's going to be king. And when the Holy Spirit left, a harmful spirit came upon Saul. And what did he try to do? He tried to kill David. He had a spear in his hand, tried to kill David. And you read 1 Samuel, he's trying to kill David all over the place. David's just running for his life from cave to cave to cave to cave to cave. Why is, why is Saul trying to kill David? It's not rational. Why is he trying to kill David? Because a harmful spirit is within him. Satan is within him wanting to kill the godly line that Christ would come through. But God delivered David. And he and his sons appear in Luke 3 in Jesus' genealogy. Satan persecuted the line, but God preserved it. But Israel is disobedient in the land. And as a judgment, they're sent away into exile. We're just following Old Testament history. Israel sent away into exile. First the Assyrians, then the Babylonians. What do the Assyrians and then later the Babylonians do when they, cap, when they take when they take over Israel, what do they do with the people? They scatter them. Why do they scatter them? Two reasons. Think. Two reasons why they would scatter the people. One, the most practical reason is so that they can't talk to their, their languages are different, so that they can't talk to their neighbors and rise up in rebellion. Right? We've conquered this people. We don't want them to rebel against us, so if we can confuse their languages, they can't rise up. Secondly, not only can they, put it, can they protect themselves from the people, they can put an end to the people. 
because over time they might start marrying their pagan neighbors and puts an end to the people. They start intermarrying and the line is broken through which the Christ would come. But God, in His mercy, raises up the Persians. Before all that happens, raises up the Persians to conquer the Babylonians. He specifically says he, he stirs up the heart of Cyrus, the king of Persia, to make a proclamation that the Jews could go back to Jerusalem, start rebuilding the city, and the line to Christ was preserved despite the persecution. But Satan wasn't ready to give up. So while the Jews were still under the rule of, of the Persians, long after King Cyrus... You have the events recorded in the book of Esther. When's the last time you read Esther? You should read Esther. It's a good book. Esther. And in that book, a high-ranking official in the Persian government, whose name was? Haman. Oh, I knew it. Haman. Haman hated the Jews. Haman was the original Hitler. He wanted to exterminate all the Jews. He wanted to exterminate all the Jews. That would have been the end of it. All the Jews die, that would have been the end of it. But what did God do? God raised up Esther to the position of queen. Queen. And she, or her adoptive father Mordecai, overheard the plan of Haman that he wanted to kill all the Jews. He let Esther the queen know, and Esther the queen put a stop to it. And ultimately it was Haman who died. That was a good book. The line to Christ was preserved, despite the persecution. But finally, in the fullness of time, as Paul says it, it was time for the Christ to come. Time for Christ to be born, but when he is born, who is king in Judea? Herod. And when Herod hears that one has been born who is king of the Jews, what decree does he make? Kill all the male children two years and under. Kill them all. The dragon is waiting to devour the child as soon as he's born. Revelation 12. But the wise men are warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. Joseph and Mary are warned to flee to Egypt, which they do where they wait until Herod died. So once again, Satan failed at stopping the coming of Christ through persecution. But he, now that Christ is here, what does he do now? He sets his sight to the church. He sets his sights to the church to destroy it. Jesus did say of Satan that he was a thief who came only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And said that, Jesus said when he built his church, the gates of hell would not prevail against it, insinuating that they would most certainly try. That too is made clear in Revelation 12. If you're still open to that, look at verses 5 and 6. She gave birth to a male child. That's the one he tried to destroy. These are the verses right after that. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That would be Jesus. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. That would be the ascension of Christ. And the woman, the church, fled into the wilderness where she is has a place prepared for, uh, by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now, we don't have time to explain the 1,260 days bit, but just notice two things about this passage. Satan, the dragon, could not stop the coming of Christ. So when Christ ascends back into heaven, he still pursues the woman, that is the church. 
and pursues her where? Into the wilderness. Now, in the wilderness, God is there, right? He's prepared a place prepared by God. She's going to be nourished. So in the wilderness, she's going to be nourished by God. But the church is going to be in the wilderness. In the wilderness is where the church will be. And we see that, hap- that persecution happening all through Acts and in Paul's letters. Through, think about that, that part in, in, in when writing to the Corinthians. How many times he's been stoned and, and, and shipwrecked and all that. And John, where is John writing the Revelation from? He is exiled on, a, on the island of Patmos. Exiled on an island. Right? As a punishment. He's persecuted. Writing this. So from in the Scriptures, from the third chapter of Genesis on, it has taught us to expect persecution. Expect opposition. Expect enmity. And Satan is behind all of this. And he has two basic weapons to, to fight the church with. Satan has two basic weapons with which to fight the church. One is pain. And we're going to think about this week. Pain. And the other one is pleasure. Which we're going to think about next week. He can cause pain and make you angry at God and curse God and die. Or he can afflict you with pleasure so that you forget about God altogether and walk away freely. But as we look at what the Scripture says, and as we think about what has happened throughout the history of the church since the days of the New Testament, what do we expect to be the outcome of it all? Scripture has told us to expect it, but when it happens, does Scripture tell us what we should expect to be the outcome of it? I think it does. And I think history has borne it out since the days of the New Testament. We see a pattern in the New Testament, of one particular outcome, I'm going to give you two outcomes that I think Scripture tells us to expect. One, and probably the main outcome that we see clearly stated in Scripture and that we see borne out in history is when persecution comes, one outcome is we see the spread of the church. We see the spread of the church. Where do we see that? Look at, here's Luke 21, 12 and 13. Jesus talking to his disciples. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and the prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. You see that? So you're being persecuted. You're being brought before kings, delivered into prison, And synagogues, that's persecution, but what's it an opportunity for to bear witness? And that's exactly what they do in Scripture. We see this in Paul repeatedly, standing before this governor and that governor and this king, and at the end of Acts, he's waiting to see Caesar himself so that he can bear witness to Caesar himself. We also see it in Acts. Like in Acts 8, after the persecution that arose after they stoned Stephen, the first Christian martyr to death, which we're going to think about this Sunday, in Acts 7, Acts chapter 8, verse 4 says, Now those who were scattered about because of that persecution went about preaching the Word. They were scattered because of persecution, but the Word went with them. And we see the same thing in, in Acts eleven nineteen. When there it becomes clear, I don't have that on the screen, but in Acts eleven nineteen, 19, it's, it's clear when it says all the places they were scattered to. 
that this is precisely how Jesus' promise of Acts 1.8 comes about. It'll go from Jerusalem to Judea and all Samaria to the ends of the earth. How did they get from this place to that place to this place to that? They were scattered there because of persecution. Persecution would drive them to those places, but rather than stamping out the church, the gospel in the church would spread into those places. We saw that play out. If you know any church history, we see that play out beyond the days of the New Testament up to this very day. Starting in the days of the New Testament, under, under the Roman Emperor Nero, who was persecuting the church in Paul's day, we see in the New Testament that the church grew anyway. About a hundred years after that, about a hundred years later in 162 A.D., you might have heard of the Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius. Marcus Aurelius was, if you've seen Gladiator, you've heard of Marcus Aurelius. He was a Roman Emperor. Persecution was strong against the church under his rule. And, and a famous Christian martyr called, his name was Polycarp. Have you ever heard of Polycarp? When they told him, he's an old man, he was 86 years old. When they told him to sacrifice to their pagan gods or die, Polycarp said, 86 years have I served Christ, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my King and Savior? And they burned him at the stake. They didn't think he was burning fast enough, so they speared him with a spear. But the church continued to grow. So much so that the church father Tertullian, Tertullian, by the way, he was, he spoke Latin. He's the guy that made up the word Trinity. You know, it's a biblical truth, but we don't have a word to describe it. He gave it a name, Trinity. In his book in AD 197, a book called Apologeticus, he made this famous statement. You might have heard it. He said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Why would he write such a thing in AD 197? Because he saw it happening right before his very eyes. Roman emperor after Roman emperor after Roman emperor. Bloody, bloody, killing, throwing Christians to the wild beasts, burning them alive crucifying them on cross, and yet the church continues to grow. Persecution comes, church continues. About 150 years after that, some of the worst persecution on record in the, of Christians in the Roman Empire came under the Roman Emperor Diocletian. Diocletian. Imprisoned pastors, killed scores of Christians who... Sacrifice, refused to sacrifice to Roman gods. That lasted 10 years. 10 years. But the church continued to grow when Constantine became emperor of the, of the church and converted to Christianity. The church grew even more. Let's, let's skip a lot of time. We'll come back to a time between here. Let's skip all the way to the approaching time of the Reformation. In 1324... In England, a professor of divinity at Oxford, name was John Wycliffe, was burned at the stake because he came to believe the true gospel, disagreed with the Roman Catholic Church, and had begun, for heaven's sake, to translate the Bible into English for ordinary people to read. He was burned at the stake for that. Did that stamp out his influence? No. He came to be known in history as the morning star of the Reformation. A couple of hundred years after Wycliffe, 
1536 in England. Another Oxford professor was a brilliant, brilliant linguist. His name was William Tyndale. Who translated the Bible into English. In fact, William Tyndale translated the Bible into English. 90% of the King James Bible is his work. Just, they just copied it over unchanged. Which is one of the most influential works in the English language. He made up words to translate it. He made up the word loving kindness. <laughs> just made it up. What's a word in English that could capture this Greek word? We don't have one. Let me make up one. Loving kindness. He was burned at the stake for it. And who, while burning to death, cried out and prayed, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. He died. But the gospel movement didn't. We know the story of Martin Luther. The Reformation in in Germany in the 1500s, was persecuted his whole adult life for challenging the Roman Catholic Church. We'll think more about him in a couple of weeks when we think more about the Reformation. Which is one more story about two other men, also in Oxford, England. Dr. Nicholas Ridley and Dr. Hugh Latimer, who during their time came to deny the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church and preached the true gospel they were arrested for this. They were sent to London to be tortured in the Tower of London. Sent back to Oxford to be burned at the stake. And before they were burned, at, they were burned at the stake on October 17th, 1555. What's well, like an anniversary is about a week from now. In Oxford, there's a broad street there. There's still a marker in the road where they were burned at the stake. October 17th, 1555. On the... On the way to the place where they were going to be burned, Ridley said to Latimer, Be of good heart, brother, for God will either assuage the fury of the flame or else strengthen us to abide it. And when the flames began, Latimer said to Ridley, Be of good cheer, Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day, by God's grace, light up such a candle in England as I trust I will never be put out. And the fire of the gospel would eventually go out in England, largely. But not because of their persecution. More on that next week. No, because of their persecution, and persecution like it that continued for another hundred years, the gospel eventually came to America. Where from here, it has gone out to the world. That's one pattern in the New Testament. One particular outcome to expect from persecution is the spread of the church. The spread of the gospel. Persecution comes, it, it gets hard here, we go there with the gospel. That's an undeniable trend that started in the New Testament, has continued all through church history to this very day. The gates of hell have not prevailed against it. But there's another pattern, a second pattern, that is also true during this church age of persecution as we wait for the Lord to come. And that is, very often, through church history, the persecution has been so heavy, so heavy, that it appears to have destroyed and extinguished 
the church in a place where it once was. North Africa used to be the center of the Christian world. It doesn't look like that today. When Islam came to power and prominence and persecution from it against the Christians began in earnest in the mid-7th century, in the 6th century, I mean 600s, in the Middle East and in North Africa, it essentially annihilated the presence of the church there in those places where that has largely been true to this day. What do we make of that? Does Scripture ever say that the church can be stamped out completely? Turn with me to one more place in Revelation. It's not going to be on the screen, but it's in Revelation 11. You may already be opened up to it. Let's start reading in verse 7. This is talking about the church. And, and it says in verse 7, And when they, the they there are believers, the church, the church in the world, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that arises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Who's the they and the them? The church. Will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Verse 8. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some, of, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents. Because these two prophets, symbolic of the church, had been a torment to those who dwell on earth. Stop right there. That's pretty bleak. That's describing a place where the church was. Through Satan's agency, they were persecuted and persecuted to such an extent they appeared dead and the people rejoiced. Verse 11. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. They stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. The church will appear at times to be dead in the world, in places in the world. They will even celebrate it and be convinced that they're dead. But God's word promises that it will never die completely. And the gates of hell at no time or in any place will prevail against it. So our mandate is to go into all the world unafraid. Unafraid. Persecution will be a reality. We are in a blip in America. I, I, I mean, Satan has two main weapons, pain and pleasure. He's been unloading the pleasure on us. 
and we're just forgetting about God altogether. But anywhere else in, in, in time, since the beginning of time, since Genesis 3, persecution has been the norm. And yet the church has grown. And even where it appears to be dead, before the Lord comes, it won't be dead. Where it appears to be dead now, North Africa, Middle East, God is doing work. God is doing work. Our mission is to go into all the world unafraid. And remember that Jesus said, in the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart. I've overcome the world. Let's pray.